1: We began the week taking a look at the contrast between the spiritual and carnal man. So what is it that created this difference, this before and after of a carnal man into spiritual? It's the work of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see next. Join us. The spiritual man and the carnal man. These first eight verses in Romans 8 gave us a great picture of these two people. But what is it that turns a carnal man into a spiritual man? Well, as we are going to find out today, here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the indwelling of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Join us as we are encouraged in our understanding of the spiritual man, who we are in Christ, and what brought it all about. From Reformed Heritage Church here in San Jose and online at reformedheritage.org, here's Pastor Gary and today's Abounding Grace. Before
2: we look at the indwelling spirit of God in us in verses 9 through 11, I would like to call your attention to a doctrine that is just right on the face of this text, but one that I dare say we do not give enough thought to. Notice verse 9, Spirit of God, and later in the verse, Spirit of Christ. And notice the Spirit raised him from the dead, even though in Romans 6, 4 it says, the glory of the Father raised him from the dead. And in John 10, Jesus said, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. So, which is it? Did the Father raise the Son from the dead? Did the Spirit raise the Son from the dead? Or did the Son raise Himself from the dead? And is He the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ? The Christian Church has professed without interruption that within the one undivided essence of God, there exists a plurality, specifically three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of which is fully and eternally the one true God. Now, God's essence to us is unknowable. It is beyond us. He never even attempts to explain it. It would be like us trying to explain atomic science to a grasshopper, just simply a waste of time. So what God does give us is little sparks of His glory, sometimes very practical, so that we can see the outworking of His essential glory, which is incomprehensible to us, so we can see it played out in actual history and in redemption for our salvation. That is what we see here on our text. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, He is the Spirit of Christ. The Lord Jesus is our mediator who was endowed with the fullness of the Spirit. And perhaps here there are hints of what theologians speak of as the double procession. That the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. But even more, here we see the inner working of each of the three persons in our salvation. The Father raised the Son, the Son raised Himself, the Spirit raised the Son. So, when we are struggling with sin, as has Paul's background context in chapters 6 through 8, when we feel like we are about to faint, when our hearts grow cold, when temptation seems to be too strong, what are we supposed to remember? That the triune God is for us, fully for us. And if we may speak from a human perspective, with limited understanding, He is fully engaged for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together, in the unified work of redemption, raised our dear Lord Jesus from the dead... Don't you think that that glorious triune God is going to make us holy? Do you think he's going to let sin destroy or mar his work in any way? No. If God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for us, as Scripture says, who can be against us? So when we struggle, we need to see his glory. We don't need to look inward. There's no hope there. We don't need to look at what other people are doing because there's no hope there either. We need to look at the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and be encouraged that the living God has set his own hand to save us as he shows here by raising his son from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life. Let's just look at each line in this this, uh, passage. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I can hear anything more encouraging than those lines. I, I tried to think of something this week. What could I hear that could be more encouraging than for an apostle of God to look at me and say... You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. How did he know this of these Romans? I mean, there's no here, I want you to be in the spirit, not in the flesh. You see, this is just a declarative statement. You are not in the flesh. He says to these believers, but you are in the spirit. This is very encouraging. But how do we know this? Notice, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Here's how we know. We're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells with us. This is one of the greatest promises of the new covenant. Turn with me to John chapter 6 for just a moment the lord jesus speaks here of this indwelling presence it's john 6:56 he says he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and i in him look over at john chapter 14 verse 23 Jesus answered and said unto him, "He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in I'm sorry. Jesus answered and said unto them, "If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him." Then in John's later writings, First John chapter four, verse 15 whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of god god dwelleth in him and he in god then in second corinthians chapter 6:16 6, and what agreement hath the temple of god with idols for you are the temple of the living god as god hath said i will dwell in them and walk in them And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So when we come to Romans 8, and we have this promise here that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, And if the Spirit of God dwells in us, we are brought face to face with one of the most glorious promises in all the Bible. That God himself will dwell with us. This is to go back to the Garden of Eden. Where we have no sin barrier between us and God. Remember, there's no condemnation, chapter 8, verse 1, to those who are in Jesus Christ. Christ, we have free access, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we're all forgiven of our sins, we have peace with God, and now God, by His Spirit, dwells with us, and makes us His temple, now most people perhaps, when they hear this, that the Spirit of God dwells in them, they think, well, I should probably be speaking in tongues maybe I should have an exalted emotional state other people think no but I will be doctrinally astute and my intellect will be razor sharp you know people say the Holy Spirit is known by three clear marks emotionalism charismatic utterance and icy intellectualism But he is actually known by two chief marks, and that is faith and repentance. Now, I want to tie these in very closely with the context here. When we hear that the Spirit of God dwells in us, the question we will obviously ask ourselves is, well, does he? Do I have the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, obviously, He unites me to Jesus Christ. And that first, I believe in Him. Now, the next question is, not do I believe enough? Do I believe sincerely enough? Do I believe deeply enough? Has my experience been that? Those are not the questions to ask. The question should be, Have I cast myself upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His name as my only cleansing and my only righteousness before God? However much I continue to struggle with sin is not the point. We've already seen Paul can feel his wretchedness, yet he still had the Holy Spirit. One of the Holy Spirit's marks is, that he dwells in us, that he turns our eyes off of ourselves, off of our work, our rituals, our emotional state, and he puts them on the Lamb of God so that we draw from the Lord Jesus Christ forgiveness of sins, cleansing, and righteousness that will stand before him on that last day. And with that, he gives repentance, a turning from sin, and a hating of it. Notice in Acts 13, 48, how these two things are joined together as being fundamental to the work of God in the soul of man. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained unto eternal life, believed. Acts chapter 20 verse 21. This is Paul's summation of his two or three year ministry in Ephesus to the Ephesian elders. And he says in verse 20, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Now here they are. Repentance to God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, repentance and faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. This may seem like actually a negative reference, but it contains a positive truth. Paul says to these believers, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, meaning the fundamentals, let us go on unto perfection, or actually maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now he says other things, also baptism and the resurrection, but notice the first two things he mentions as the apostolic foundation, repentance and faith. Now in chapter 6 and 7, what has Paul been talking about? He's been talking about holiness there. He's been very careful after in chapters 1 through 5, showing that we are declared to be right with God on the basis of the finished work of Jesus. Not out of our own obedience, but His. Then in chapters 6 through 8, he has been showing how that principle will work out in your lives, and that we will all be holy through it. Now, when he comes to chapter 8, he's been contrasting the carnal, fleshly, sin enslaved man with the spiritual man, as we saw last week. Now, Paul knows because he was taught by the Holy Spirit that when we start talking along these lines, one of the things we're going to struggle with is do I have these things enough? Do I have enough walking in the Spirit? And then, of course, this leads us to start examining on ourselves with minutia. We start with, well, there is this imperfection in my life. But there is this sin. So I must not really be a Christian. So I need to yet, yet have another experience of grace. Uh, some people even think maybe I need to be baptized yet again. So the cycle and the spiral just goes on and on of inward looking and weakness and doubt and, and despair. Do you remember something about both faith and repentance? They are looking away from me. Faith is looking away from performance, my level of attainment, my emotional state. And faith in Jesus is looking at him. It is looking and believing that He is our righteousness. He is our cleansing before Almighty God. And it's the same thing with repentance. Why do we repent? Our confession says in chapter 15 that out of a sense of the danger of sin and the holiness of God. So both faith and repentance are looking away from self. So when we read verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. The purpose of this is to give us encouragement not to make us morbid self-executioners. Have I believed enough? Have I felt enough? Have I obeyed enough? No, the Holy Spirit says, do you hate your sins? Are you endeavoring to repent of them? Do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Then you have Christ. Because let me tell you something. There is no one who can say, Jesus is Lord sincerely, except by the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no one who can hate sin and beg God for mercy, except they have the Holy Spirit. There is no one who can resist sin and turn from it and make it make even the slightest progress in really overcoming it, except they have the Holy Spirit. So there, So we see this little progress in us maybe. We see what we sometimes call small faith. Well, remember the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus said, it's not the amount of the faith. It is the one to whom your faith looks. It's not the amount because it is not your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you, the Son of God through faith. It is not your level of holiness that saves you, that guarantees that you have the Holy Spirit. Is there any power to resist sin in you? Is there any strength unto holiness? At times in our lives there can just be an on our face before God, weeping over our sins, asking for mercy, seeking God's grace to overcome them. That doesn't come from us. That comes from the Holy Spirit, beloved. If you experience these things in your life, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. So be encouraged when you see these things in your life. Isn't it everything that God has promised? Is it everything that we even want? No, of course not. Because we want to fly to heaven in obedience to God. We want to shout from the rooftops of God's glory and His power and His majesty. And yet, we, we do have this treasure in broken pots. So when we see any faith, when we see any turning toward God in repentance and a hating of our sins, we must thank God and recognize the Spirit's own marks that we belong to Him. And therefore, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how critical this is in the second part of verse 9. If many men have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In other words, we can't claim to have Christ unless we have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is Christ's seal that we belong to him. And by the way, this is also encouraging. Wait a minute now. If I have Jesus, that means I must have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.7, The Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit have so bound themselves together in the work of redemption that we don't have Jesus unless we have the Holy Spirit. Now when we hear this, We must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Wait another minute. Do you mean it's not enough to just have a naked ascent? Yes, there was a man named Jesus and he died on a cross, so that means I'm going to go to heaven, right? Well, if you're going to go to heaven, Jesus brings you there upon the omnipotent divine arm of the Holy Spirit. Now, on the one hand, that should encourage us that in our battles against sin, we don't battle alone, but we do battle. Think of the worst sin of your life, the biggest struggle, the biggest heartache. If you are in the Lord Jesus and you're walking with Him, you are never alone. Now, sometimes... In our stupidity, we act like we're alone, and we don't call upon the name of the Lord, and we don't meditate upon his word, and we don't draw near to him, but we are not alone. If we believe in the Lord Jesus, and we hate our sins, and God has granted us repentance, that's because he has given us to his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes us God's dwelling place. And that means there is strength in us to overcome. It means when I fight against a particular sin, I have an omnipotent, divine power, faithfulness that I can always count on. Do you count on it? Do you call upon the name of the Lord? Beloved, these are our blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this also explains a verse like Ephesians 4.30, where Paul says very simply, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Because what happens if I grieve Him? First of all, how do I grieve the Holy Spirit? By careless sinning, loose sinning, cold-hearted sinning. Remember... The opposite of holiness is sin. So any time, as Christians, that we don't pray, and we do our own thing, and we want to live as a law unto ourselves, and we're not meditating on the Word of God, and we're not calling upon Him for help, we are sinning. And in sinning, we are grieving and pushing away the Spirit of God.